Hebrews 13, 1 through 16. Here, the writer, he's been dealing with faith since, uh, uh, in a very deliberate way, since chapter 11. The heroes of faith. He takes these Jews who are tempted to go back under the Levitical system of showing that uh, faith is the victory in Christ. He shows all the heroes of faith in the Old Testament that looked to God, believed in God, obeyed God. And then in chapter 12, you remember last week, I think it was, he went into the ultimate pattern of faith. He said, look unto Jesus, verse 2 of chapter 12. Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, it's taken me years to do this, but I finally got it accomplished, I think. Every time I have a problem, every time I have a uh, difficulty deciding whether something is right or wrong, I look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. And because he's our pattern, he's our example. Peter says that we're to follow his example in all things. Uh, so uh, he is the resolve to anything, any matter, any problem that comes up in our faith. So if you trying to if you have difficulty trying to understand something in regard to the practice of Christianity, first thing you do is ask yourself, well, what would Christ do? What did he do? Because you can find something in the Gospels about Christ in every facet of your life that you can pattern yourself after and follow. But we're to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, he continues in chapter 13 as he closes out his letter. And this is, this is uh, uh, he assures his readers that faith is crucial. Now, in order to maintain faith, he's going to talk a little bit about this, uh, this principle that I'm going to mention. But it needs stressing. You remember in one of our lessons last week, Maybe it's Wednesday night. We discussed this this fact that uh, a candle you can light a candle and the strong wind will blow it out. But what does a strong wind do when you're out camping and you built up a bed of coals? It just makes them burn brighter, and that's what the church is. And so to abandon services of the Lord, and he's already admonished them in the 10th chapter, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And the manner of some is that they do that. They don't realize that together as a family, we lean heavy on one another. We learn from one another. Um, we have camaraderie uh, that aids us and helps us in times of uh, trouble and we're always in trouble in life aren't we because life is opposed uh, the world of man is opposed to us and so when we hold together uh, in our faith uh, we're not only encouraging others they're encouraging us there's a reciprocation that goes on between all the members of the church like in a family it's not a big secret thing uh, I'm not talking something that's uh, outrageous or a secret that's what goes on in a family. Uh, those uh, home-like glows, there's a warmth in the family because it all shares together from the littlest to the biggest. In this case, it'd be little comrade with big comrade. He's the biggest and he's the littlest. <laughs> so here he's going to assure his readers that faith is crucial. Uh, it's crucial to the survival as a believer in Christ. I need it. I need 
the encouragement, just to see your face. You don't have to come with words to me, just your face. Your fidelity, your uh, inward assurance that makes an outward expression by being here, even when I know you don't feel good or whatever. And so from this point forward, the writer will, he will be insisting upon certain Christian privileges and duties. Well, let's just jump ahead here for a minute. What would be one of the privileges and duties? To sing of our praise to God. You can tell by the way uh, men sing whether there's any thanksgiving in it, any praise, any adoration to God because they sing like a, a, a parrot, you know. All they want a cracker, and that's the way they sing. But somebody else can sing as though he was having a meltdown in praise to God, thanksgiving to God. And in doing so, uh, what's his duty? To teach others. Remember Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, both in passages say basically the same thing. Paul's admonition to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord and making melody of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And he said, in that you're teaching and admonishing one another. Now maybe you never saw yourself as a preacher but that's what preachers do, isn't it? And you are a preacher. You may not have the right to step into the pulpit because of immaturity or because you're a woman, but still you're a preacher, even as a woman. Because you teach by example, don't you? Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7 that uh, he asked a woman this question in regard to divorce? He said, how do you know, wife, whether you might not win your husband by your chaste behavior. And so there she is teaching by her chaste behavior. In other words, uh, she has reined in and harnessed up her behavior, and it's very chaste to God. And by that, by her devotion and dedication and continued persistence in worshiping God, She's teaching her husband, isn't she? And so all of us are preachers. That's one reason I hate the word preacher, because I don't like to be put outside the realm of everybody else, like I didn't have a mother and a father. I did. I'm just another person. I'm just an older brother, if you want to look at it that way. Of course, in reality, I am, ain't I? Older. Much older. <laughs> Much older. <laughs> you know, we've got several comedians that's coming on pretty good here in this conversation. <laughs> and Jeff is one of them. <clears throat> so uh, he will remind them to certain Christian men of faith, uh, uh, stalwarts who have already won the victories in Christ, and uh, assures them that they even have present-day leaders on whom they can depend. One thing is evident. God is always there. After all, he died for the church. He purchased it with divine blood. You think he would abandon it? You think he'd let anything happen to it? What did the Lord say in his proposal to build the church? Matthew 16, verse 18. He said, Upon this firm conviction that I'm the Son of God, I will build my church. My is a possession, isn't it? It's His church. It's not the Lutheran church. It's not the Baptist church. It's not the... Well, we could go on and on. It's the church of Christ. He died for it. It's His. His possession. And what did He say about that church? He added a clause there, or a phrase that's very powerful. He said, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. 
you think he'd let anything happen to the church? So uh, he's going to remind them of this fact, the evident fact that God is always there. He's always there with us. He is always dependable and regardless of how the external circumstances may appear. And sometimes we get afraid of the external circumstances, don't we? A lot of it's just a puff of smoke. You know, the enemy, our enemy, Christianity's enemy, the Christian's enemy is always like any other enemy. They like to put on a show, don't they? You watch these westerns. And even the way the uh, the bad guy dresses bespeaks of his uh, the impact of his influence he wants to put on you. He wants to scare you. And the circumstances of life many times scares us. We see the politicians going this way and that way contrary to everything we believe. And uh, trying to take over our freedoms and our responsibilities as parents over our own children. They're trying to rob our own children from us and decide what they're going to talk. Those are circumstances that scares us. <clears throat> so when we get scared, we look to who? Our commander. You're on the battlefield, you look back to see if the commander has left. <laughs> if he's still there, <laughs> There's nothing to worry about. He has everything under control. And that's the idea here. Uh, regardless of how the external circumstances may appear in life, we are nevertheless, what did Paul say in Romans 8? More than conquerors. More than conquerors. Uh, that's a bar and a phrase from Romans 8, verse 30, 37. Christians can be confident in the continual exercise of their faith and they're committed in their devotions to Christ. They must be in their submission to the arrangements that God has made for the government and organization of his kingdom. Well, I, these people need to be reminded, as we do, of the nature of this government that God organized or uh, set up, originated. We don't have a right to take the church and just do with it as we please and make rules and regulations. We follow the pattern uh, like uh, like God told Noah when he built the ark and Moses as he uh, built the tabernacle. God said, see to it that you do it according to the pattern." And we worship God today according to the pattern. We don't go outside that pattern. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And there's a pattern set. And God's always with us. And so that's what he's going to finish out the Hebrew letter in informing these Hebrew <coughs> Jews, these Jews, of this fact. Christ is still on the throne He's never been in unthrown. Uh, he took that throne seat when he was crucified, didn't he? Because he had finished the work God sent him to do. So, regardless of what Caesar does to the people, Christ is still on the throne. He still sets up kings and brings them down. Did God set up Caesar? <coughs> did God set up Caesar? He certainly did. Did he set up Domitian that he destroyed in the book of Revelation? He certainly did. He set him up and he brought him down. But he done it according to his bidding, not yours. I mean, you're sitting back here thinking, well, why don't he do something? Well, he has a purpose. for Everything God does is just and right. That's the throne he sits on. Psalms 89, verse 14. So consequently, uh, we look at what God, what goes on out here in the circumstances of life, and we know that there's a purpose in it, or it wouldn't exist, because the whole scheme of uh, life is redemption. That's the only reason God created this earth, this this whole cosmos, was for the redemption of ruined humanity. 
and he knew that man had to step over the line in order to appreciate what he had to offer. <clears throat> there are some doctrinal confusions that are beginning to be introduced as optional ways of believing, but doctrinal clarity and consistency of practice go hand in hand. They create the best atmosphere for doctrinal stability. Verse 1. keep on loving one another? Can you love somebody that's, that uh, we say is not lovable? <laughs> Everybody's lovable. The ugliest person in the world, and I'm not talking about his physical features as much as I'm talking about his character feature, his characteristical features. Can your heart break over a young man throwing his life away in stupidity? Sure it can. Sure it does. Because you love him. Why do you love him? Because well, God made him. God had a purpose in him coming into this world. Same as you. You're not special. I mean, <laughs> the scripture is pretty clear. God res respects no man's person except those that fear God and keep his commandments. But we get to thinking we're pretty special, don't we? I'm not like him. Uh, I'm a good person. I, I'm good looking and I'm, I'm good in obedience. And why? And that builds hate toward one another and resentment. But you can love the ugliest person, can't you? You don't love his ways. You abhor him. You know that young fellow that uh, abused and killed a bunch of them little kids that was finally executed here in the state of Washington years ago. I don't know what his name was. Young boy. There was a group of these bleeding hearts that was trying to save him from execution. And he come out on the news and the news reporter said that he claimed that anybody interfered with his dying uh, by execution He'd, he'd sue them. And they backed off and the state of Washington executed him. He couldn't live with what he had done in abusing them little boys and killing them. In the aftermath, he couldn't live with the animal that was created in him by his giving in to the seduction of the devil. Can, can you love a person like that? Well, it broke my heart because I could feel the pain that that boy was going through because sin is one of the, it is the ugliest thing we know of. There's nothing beautiful about it. Now, there's, there's the pleasures of sin for a season. It has ple it's pleasurable. There's no lying about that, and the Bible don't lie to you. It tells you sin is pleasurable. But it has a short season. And what about after that season is over? Well, here's a boy who was looking back on what he had done, and he wanted to die. Evidently, he had the idea that when he died, it would all be, there would be no more conscience bothering him where he couldn't sleep. Can you love a person like that? You better believe you can. My heart went out to that boy. Even though he, he, what he done was, you don't even want to look at what he does. But can you love him? And so here the writer says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Does, is that admonition a fresh one for today? I mean, it's very vibrant today, isn't it? We look at one another and we begin to select out of the herd the best. You know, that's what a cattleman does. 
Well, that cow, nah, she don't throw good calves. Get rid of her. Keep this one on. And that's the way we do people. Oh, that's a good friend of mine, but them, uh, I don't know about it. We, we're separating the herd. We don't have that right. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Now in chapter 10 and verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, he assured them that God records and rewards all good deeds shown by brethren toward each other. A favor that contributes to survival as Christians is a period of stress in the maintenance of wholesome relationship with the family of God. All right, by keeping on loving one another, you have this wholesome relationship with God's family. And you want to be in wholesome relationship, don't you? And so continue to express that sense of solidarity that had already manifested itself in the past. That's what he's telling these Jews. He's telling them to keep their public uh, contact with the church, with faithful consistency. And of course, that was Hebrews 10, 25, wasn't it? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Uh, so relationships in the church is important to survival. Uh, relations in the common assembly of the church makes it possible for each Christian to prod, to encourage, to provoke one another to love and good works. And that's 10, Hebrews 10, verse 24, isn't it? We're to provoke one another to love and good works. Uh, isolation exposes one to unneeded danger. And we talked about that a minute ago. Isolation. A candle out here facing the strong winds of life to blow out. But when they're in a bed of coals with all the other members, the strong winds does what to those coals? Just furiates the fire and builds it deeper and stronger. Verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained strangers without knowing it. Those strangers are probably foreign Christians in this incident when Paul wrote this. Uh, probably foreign Christians who have been scattered by the persecution of the day. Remember Acts uh, 8, the Christians were scattered by persecution, and then whenever we're preaching the word, 8, 1 through 4, yeah. And so he's writing to these kind of people, and he tells them, don't forget to entertain strangers. A stranger is somebody that's not of your city, isn't it? Somebody that you don't know. For by so doing, some people have entertained strangers, uh, angels without knowing it. Uh, so clearly they are not residents of your city. This was a period of time, intense persecution against the Jews by the Romans. Christians were instructed in Matthew 24 that when they see the Roman hordes begin, uh, besieging Jerusalem to flee to the mountains. Oh, I misread that. He said to get your AK-47 and your AR-15 and get ready to kill in the name of Governor... Who's the governor of this state? Easley. 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 Uh, oh, that ain't what that said. So, thus, many of those early believers were scattered from their native land as they done what Jesus said, run for your life, flee. Get out of the, get out of the way of the battle. 
because the battle is going to be between the Romans and the Jewish hierarchy and those who are faithful to it. God was bringing his wrath on them. You remember he spared them when he destroyed the ten tribes. Remember that in 721? You can read about it again in 2 Kings 17. There's an epitaph of what happened to the ten tribes and why God destroyed them. And then it says Judah done the same thing. How come God didn't destroy him right then? Because he had a purpose in it. And he wanted to show us his faithfulness to his covenant and his fidelity. Because he had sworn back in Genesis 49.10, the ruler's staff would not depart from who? Judah. Judah, the only tribe left until Shiloh come. But soon as Shiloh came and Shiloh warned them Jews of what was going to happen in A.D. 70. Their destruction. And that lack of faith, they didn't listen to him. And they were destroyed. So here's an army. Jesus described a war going on between Rome and those hard-headed people. What about the Christian? The Lord said, you flee. You get out from between the battlefield. You get off the battlefield. That's what will happen when trouble comes to America. Who's going? To, who's the war with? Well, it'll be with the government of America against those groups that set themselves to battle with them. Whether they're right or wrong is irrelevant. Here's a battle. Here's the enemy, and here's the other enemy fighting one another. And you're in the middle of that. Get out of it. Run. Flee. Our warfare spiritual Yeah. And if you want to look up some passages on that, uh, uh, many of those early believers were scattered from their native land. Uh, and you want to look maybe at 1 Peter 1, verse 1, and James 1, verse 1. Because those letters were addressed to strangers scattered abroad. Christians scattered because of persecution. They didn't go get their AR-15. Oh, I'm going to show them. Show them what? You're going to show that God rules what you're going to do because he'll, he, he'll take you as well as the enemy because you're going against the principles of God. Uh and as they flee to the mountains, the writer says to the other Christians uh, who live in the mountain area, uh, the ones that's up there, be sure to entertain. And so when we run to the mountains, or they run to the mountains in fear of the Romans, there's strangers up there. Uh, there's people up there that are strangers to you, and you're strangers to them. Show hospitality toward those that are not native to your village. The Jews are going to reject them, but you receive them into your home. The Christian atmosphere receives them into their home. <clears throat> By being hospitable, he said in that verse, uh, verse 2, some have entertained angels without knowing it. <laughs> It amazes me the influence and the impact that the world in general has on everybody's mind. When you think of angels, what what do you immediately think of? Someone with wings. Yeah. And someone who is perfectly white. Don't you? Anybody arguing with that? That's a picture that the world has planted up here. But the Bible teaches what? That you can entertain an angel and be unaware of it. You mean you can be unaware that, he don't, that, that he's got wings and he's white? <laughs> no. <laughs> can you think of any instances in the history of the Bible where some have entertained angels unaware? How about Abraham? He says... Uh, Entertain angels without knowing it. 
for by doing so, some people in the past have entertained angels without knowing it. Automatically, we think of Abraham and even Lot. Remember those men that went down to Lot's house? He didn't know they were angels. But he practiced his Christianity and invited them in and seen to their needs and fed them. Without knowing uh, that they were angels, they manifested hospitality toward those that they did not know, and they were richly blessed. Uh, now, let me draw you a picture here, a mental picture. When someone comes into our congregation, we get very suspicious of them. I'm kind of suspicious <laughs> in a godly way. There's some people who need to be suspicious of. But we're so suspicious that if they're not just, if they don't measure up to our idea of a Christian, we don't want nothing to do with them. But that's not the idea of entertaining, entertaining strangers. You don't question the fellow. You show hospitality to him. You're his brother. So God tells his people in this context here in Hebrews, go ahead and entertain those that have come outside your city. <coughs> you will be richly blessed just as Abraham and a lot were in ages past. You believe God will bless you if you entertain angels, if you entertain strangers? That's exactly what happened, and that's exactly what it says. But he don't send us a letter saying, uh, I'm going to bless you. You don't get a certificate or a uh, from the store over here. Come over here, we're going to bless you with a new Cadillac if you got the money. No, there's no advertisement about it. Your faith knows that God will bless you. That's the idea. We walk by what? Faith and not by sight. And so if you believe God, you'll take that to the bank. That if you entertain strangers, God will bless you. Why would you entertain strangers? Because you love them, even though you don't know them. So they got problems. You still love them, although you don't agree with them. Because you see that Christ died for that fellow, that woman, that person. That puts a value on everybody, doesn't it? The worst of people. I hurt sometimes thinking about people that's brought up on the news that's committed atrocious acts, accidents. Uh, shameful and embarrassing to even in private to hear about. I feel for those people. They didn't know what they was getting into when they were seduced by the devil. Come this way. Come over here. Try this. Because darkness is shadowy when you first enter it, isn't it? But what about when you walk in it a while? It gets darker and deeper more dangerous. Uh, well, it can't become any more dangerous because sin is missing the mark and soul of sins, it should be cut off from God. God does not allow even the shades of sin, the shadow of sin to, to any degree. All right, verse uh, three. Have you noticed that I have begun to catch myself in my wanderings? And chasing rabbits. <laughs> Paul's up here clapping. Did you see that? As loud as I can. And I'm supposed to love him? <laughs> He's your brother. I was congratulating you. Uh, well, let me make a, a notation of that up here. In the Lamb's book of, in Merle's book of life. <laughs> All right, verse 3. <laughs> Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoner 
and those who are mistreated as if you were suffering. That's putting yourself in their shoes, isn't it? And I just talked about that in regard to, like that young boy. Well, he was in his 20s, I suppose, but still a young fella. I mean, the devil just destroyed his whole life. He went along with it because he didn't have, uh, nobody ever developed in him an appetite for the, what we have here. He had no hunger and thirst for the truth. Well, the truth's the only thing that you can stand by. Look at all the people who go to their grave because of not abiding in the truth, not adhering to the truth, having no hunger and thirst after righteousness. All right, so remember those in prison as if you were their fellow if you were their fellow prisoner, and those who are uh, uh, ministered as if you were uh, mistreated, as if you were suffering. So since it's a period of persecution that Paul's writing to, and that's a period, he tells them to remember those that are in prison. Doubtless he's talking about his fellow Christians that have been in prison simply because of their faith. But he says you remember them as if you were their fellow prisoner. In other words, mentally put yourself in prison. Think of yourself being deprived of the freedoms and animities of life without the ministry of family, without the privilege of travel, and the exercise of your rights. Now, if you were in that situation, what would you like for those uh, on the outside to do for you? What ministries would you want them to perform toward you personally and your family that would uh, be deprived of your presence? And so now do for those in prison what you would like for others to do for you if you were there. In other words, practice the golden rule. Have you noticed at the public school the first line of attack was to get rid of speaking of the golden rule? Because it pretty well answers a whole bunch of problems, doesn't it? Do unto others, you'd have others do unto you. The devil didn't want that talk to them. And so there's generations that have never heard that. Except for those few that maybe goes to services. But that was the first line of attack, the devil's attack on, the, on young people in the public schools. I can remember, I'm old enough to remember when the attack started. And that was one of the primary things. Don't don't speak about that no more in school. Had no place in school. Do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. And now we're living amongst animals that will laugh at your calamity and step across your wounded body to go on their own way and mock at it and laugh at it. We got animals. You see them in their extreme con uh, expressions on the streets. You see them in the news, running up behind an old man and hitting him in the head, knocking him, 90 years old, knocking him down, or kicking this lady, or slapping this woman on the street for no reason, just coming up and popping her and knocking her down. That's the kind of animals that our school systems has raised. Well, I don't, the problem goes back to the parents, that's true. They're ultimately responsible. They're the ones that set up the school system. But they're dismantling it, aren't they? They've had enough of Big Shot Joe thinking that he owns our children because he's the governor or the legislator or something. Uh then people need to be shot. And I would love them while I shot them, but I would also love shooting them. <laughs> that didn't sound Christian, did it? 
Do we have an example of the Lord doing that? And so I'm not going to allow a politician to work on my emotions and put an AK-47 in my hand against my neighbor. Ain't going to do it. I'm trying to love my neighbor. I'm trying to understand him. I'm trying to deal with him as a neighbor for his good as well as mine. Um, so he says to remember those that are mistreated as if you were suffering so uh, you're still in the physical body and maybe one day of suffering will come and so the writer says, minister to them as you would want them to minister to you if you were suffering. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Why do you think the writer come up with that all of a sudden in his admonition to follow the faith of uh, that's in Christ? Why do you think he come up with that? Because there were doctrines back then if you study the history of that time and they're still present with us today that uh, marriage was... Uh, that relations and unions between man and woman was ungodly. Where do you think the monks come from? Because they concluded that everything about the flesh is evil. And so they moved up on the mountain, separated themselves from everybody else, lived up there in seclusion. They made themselves sleep on rocks and thorns to punish the body. They would suffer the cold to punish the body. They would eat coarse things to punish the body. They would abstain from marriage and sex to punish the body because they saw all them things as evil. Well, anyway, that was a problem that the writer's dealing with here that you probably didn't know about unless you looked into the history of that time. So he said, do not despise marriage because there are some doctrines that are being suggested now that tell us that the relationships in marriage are unholy. Such false doctrines teach that the only way to be pure is to separate from any marriage relationships. There's your monks. Uh, somebody got a good description of a monk. We seen them back in the Vietnam War, didn't we? They poured gasoline on themselves and burned themselves to death in protest of the war. They were Puritans, and they abstained from everything that God created. Did God create marriage? Certainly did. So I take it as it's a good thing, isn't it? Well, the proverb writer says, and the psalm says, that uh, finding a wife is a good thing and a blessed thing. <laughs> but man's doctrine sometimes gets interfering with that. All right, so evidently, incipient uh, Gnosticism is creeping into the church at that time and threatens its family life in separation of these things. Gnostic doctrines were based on the practice of asceticism. It is a doctrine Im uh, imported probably from pagan sources that believe that all physical union even of husband and wife, were unholy. And that's why this was written in here, as Paul closes out his letter. 
Such doctrine ignores that God in the beginning ordained marriage with all of its privileges. Uh, so let no one condemn the ordinance of God. God honored it and ordained the union of Adam and Eve when he said, Be fruitful and multiply. And he said, Let the marriage bed be kept pure. Uh, there he insists that all extra matrimonial uh, encounters are condemned by God. He will judge the adulterer and sexually immoral. And so honor marriage and honor with purity its marriage bed. It is a legitimate state for Christians. God recognized it. He instituted it. And so do not let anyone bring accusation against the state or the condition of marriage. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, he told his readers that the Holy Spirit had expressly informed us that in the next few years, men are going to arise teaching things taught by demons. Men are going to arise in the church, standing before in the pulpit, teaching doctrines of demons. Yes. Among some of the things they would teach and command involved the rejection of marriage. They were commanded men not to marry. But Paul identified those doctrines as coming from demons or inspired by Satan himself. He also said it was a result of an apostasy from the truth of Christ. Verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Uh, the man who loves money is devoted to the accumulation of it. But his motives are rooted in the lack of trust in God's providence. Now he's not condemning amassing money. He's not condemning uh, the, the common sense of saving a little money for uh, what may come unexpected in the future. Uh, but there are people who trust solely in money. They don't trust in God. They don't trust His providence. But what did that verse say? Because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Do you believe that? Well, if you're walking with Him, He never will. Uh, so, uh, this motives are rooted in the lack of trust in God's providence. Contentment that is based on possessions is never secure. God promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Uh, these words were given in the context of the transfer of the leadership over Israel from Moses to Joshua. Because on that occasion... The new leader had just received the mantle from Moses when God gave him those words of assurance in Joshua 1, verse 5. And also Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Moses had already gone to Mount Nebo to be buried by God. Uh, there must have been considerable uh, insecurities in Joshua. Moses is no longer going to be leading all those three and a half million people. 
Joshua, the mantle is now on Joshua. And so God tells Joshua uh, to not worry about it. Don't worry about the, uh, the provisions and the leadership of this great people. For I am with you. I will not forsake you. Do we believe that? <laughs> We'd believe it more if God sent us uh, an affidavit, wouldn't he, or a letter? He did right here. We just read it. How much more do you need? Again, we walk by faith and not by sight. It looks to that clock, our time is up. Uh, so, next Sunday we'll start with verse 6. But he's closing out his letter to these people, these Hebrews, and he's merely telling them uh, to look to faith. Uh, faith is a certainty to win the victory. Faith is a victory that overcomes the world. All right. I see everybody brought their faces. 